does the way we talk about the circular economy end up blocking progress? Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Wheatman, and I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's nowhere near enough to create a healthy, resilient and zero carbon world where we can all thrive. Many organisations are missing the game-changing potential of going circular. The disruptors in this space are using circular strategies to reimagine how to create value for all their stakeholders. They're doing better with less. We'll hear from those inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make and use everything. You'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to podcast updates, my Circular Insights newsletter and check out my award-winning A Circular Economy Handbook. Hey there, welcome back. Thank you, as always, for lending us your ears and for helping to spread the word on the need for a circular, regenerative and fair economy. It's episode 118 and we're going to talk about how we talk about the circular economy, the language we use and whether it's helping us or getting in the way. Anne Stevenson is the circular economy lead at Resource Futures, an employee-owned and non-profit distributing B Corp environmental consultancy in the UK. Anne has been working in the field of environmental consultancy for over 25 years, and one of her specialisms is understanding and managing risks in transitioning to a circular economy. Anne became curious to know more about how we use language to explain and make the case for the circular economy, and to discover whether that's affecting how small-medium enterprises, SMEs, are moving towards more circular practices. The academic term for this kind of research is discourse analysis, aiming to understand how language is used in real-life situations. Anne recently completed a PhD using discourse analysis to investigate perceptions of risks around the circular economy for established small manufacturing businesses or SMEs. And she's written a chapter with her key findings for a newly released book, Circular Economy, Meeting Sustainable Development Goals. And that's published by the Royal Society of Chemistry. We've included links to Anne's PhD and the book in the show notes. We discuss some surprising findings, in particular how we tend to frame the workings and outcomes of a circular economy in ways that actually encourage and embed the wrong behaviours. For example, Anne explains how focusing on economic cost savings can lead us to focus on outcomes that are too narrow and that might ignore important benefits, especially over the long term. We can end up with unintended consequences too. One example is when we talk about waste being a valuable resource. And Anne explains why that's tricky. 
So please join me in welcoming Anne Stevenson to the Circular Economy podcast. Anne, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. It's great to see you all the way down in the south of England today. And can we start by asking what you do, why you do it, and what keeps spurring you on? Okay. No, thanks, Catherine. It's great to be here. Um, so I lead the uh, Circular Economy in Practice team in Resource Futures. So what we do is support businesses and organisations who work with businesses, really, to evaluate, plan out and put in place and measure uh, circular, circular business models um, that they're looking at. Um, what, why do I do it? To be honest, I've worked in consultancy the majority of my career, and I, I believe most people in businesses want to do good things and have good ideas, but they worry about not making the right choice. And so they become they can become a bit static. And so rather than make a mistake, don't go forward. So, you know, being in consultancy gives me the chance to be that sort of critical friend and help them on whatever journey they're on. Um, in terms of what spurs me on, um, I, there's just so many people and businesses out there doing uh, positive things to be kind to nature and people that it keeps me want to keep on helping them uh, wherever I can. Yeah, sounds good. And I think there's certainly more and more businesses looking to do that now and realising that that's what people, their customers, their employees want. It's not just about the product or the service, it's about what's behind the business. And over the years, you've become more interested in the language that we use, particularly around sustainability. And that's what we've decided to dig into today. So what kind of things can go wrong with language and you know, how and why does that happen and what, and what can we, how can we think differently about it? Um, well, I think we've got to think about, well, what is language? And basically, you know, communicating with each other, whether we're talking or whether we're writing something or using sounds or images is a big part of how we actually get things done. And the language and the patterns of how and what we say help us to understand each other and to share meaning. So we use a lot of shortcuts, don't we? And these... And these shortcuts are something that we learn and become they become habits or taken for granted truths about the way of the world. And it tends to stem from, you know, sort of our historical roots, uh, our ideological roots and sort of the social cultural context that we're in. Uh, but the thing is, these patterns that we just come to rely on to communicate with each other, it influences people's perceptions and their and ultimately their actions that people carry out so it's really important that we if we if we sort of fail to take care of what we say and to whom we're saying things to we can end up in a bit of a pickle because in effect there are always consequences of of what we say now I mean that can sort of range from um, it can reinforce something. If we just use something that we hear every day, it can reinforce a stereotype or what is to be seen as the truth. Or, of course, what we can do, which we're also very good at because that's what humans are, we can actually create that sort of environment 
um, for resistance to change, or we can suppress alternative views and actions. But we can also challenge by changing what we're saying or how we communicate. We can also challenge understandings of concepts and sort of how people rationalize their actions. And, and so, yeah, so and in the environment field, or as I'm sure we're about to talk about the circular economy, there are really important things that we're sort of people are sort of habitually saying that does have a long term influence. So maybe there's things we need to question a bit. Mm. So um, could you give us an everyday example of that? Yeah, well, just for example, I mean, there's two things I could do personally or I mean, on the radio this morning, you know, in news of the state of our economy. Um, because it hasn't grown, or that's what they're reporting, it hasn't grown. It was to me, it was repeatedly described as stagnating. Now, using that term, that means obviously if we don't grow, if we don't have economic growth, that means it's a really bad and disgusting thing. Mm, because but, stagnant stagnant water yeah. is kind of smelly and unhealthy and yeah, exactly. interesting. But what if we'd sort of just talked about it in the context of, well, our economy is just in a bit of a steady state at the moment. Is that a good thing? It could exactly. be even better for the environment. So it's it's just because we get used to. Yeah. I mean, they could have even said talking. equilibrium, couldn't they? Which sounds yeah. really nice and balanced and positive. Yeah, and... Exactly. So it is those sort of uh, things. Um, so that's a, a sort of at that level. Um, I mean, I don't know, Catherine, if you want me to do a personal sort of thing, it's things like, you know, I'm a parent. By me just saying that, people are already making assumptions about what is a parent? And obviously, by, you know, a parent is you know, a care of at least one child, likely. And so there's often the things that we hear people might use phrases such as, I'm the fun parent. Okay. Just by doing something instantly, such a place implies that there may be another parent who isn't maybe quite so much fun. And, and what if, I mean, if we're not thinking about what the consequences of using terms like that on the child that we're looking after, again, you can create some, some potentially not positive uh, reactions in various people. So, but again, it's just something we maybe habitually learn to say. Mm. That, that's what how we're supposed to describe different types of parenting and what what made you because you've not just kind of thought about this have you you've done mm. a lot of work around this what made you decide to really dig into this and and study it in in terms of the language around sustainability and the circular economy yeah well like i said i've been working in this field for quite a few years um now and over the last 20 years you know we start off with things like waste minimization, environmental best practice, resource efficiency, different terminology. But what I was tending to see was that there seemed to be a consistency in what was being presented as to why things maybe weren't happening or why things were happening. You know, the usual thing, drivers and barriers. It's a very mm. common phrase that we use in this field and particularly aimed at um, SMEs, small and medium sized um, companies um and and um, um what i was thinking well 
it's the same messages that we've been having for two decades. So if what they're saying are the drivers and barriers, and if we're putting in lots and lots of support, which we which we have been doing, whether it's innovation support, whether it's about education or upskilling and things like that, well, why isn't environmental good practice just business as usual? And so to me, it was, well, there must be something more fundamental to this. And so from my point of view, it was very much um, um, as we started using more and more the terms of the circular economy, I didn't see that changing. The same things are coming out. We're still talking about these sets of drivers and barriers as to why things um, were happening. And, and so actually there came an opportunity at Cardiff University to investigate perceptions of risk in that transition into a circular economy um, through discourse analysis. And so I jumped at that chance because, um, and, and it was very much focused on established manufacturing SMEs because a lot of discourse of the circular economy is about new startups and great new innovations by very small businesses. But near, you know, most of our businesses that here in the UK have been established for quite a while now. So it was that sort of trying to understand what were the fundamental reasons why perhaps this change hasn't happened or is it happening but actually people don't call it circular economy it is is it really business as usual and we're just assuming it's not so it was just really intriguing to sort of delve deeper into into that realm and of course the only way you can understand that is you have to well I think you have to talk to people oh. And so, and so, in the course of your studies, what sort of things emerge from that in in terms of the language that we use, and what's helpful and what's not? Yeah. So um, through the analysis, I mean, it was through interviews and analysing policy discourse, uh, attending events, what people presented at at, at these uh, forums, and how they talked about SMEs or talked about the circular economy. So it was based on um in-depth analysis of those sort of as I call patterns um of, of of discourse you know and what what I found was there was lots of shared patterns so no matter who you were what type of actor you were whether you were a politician whether you were a circ somebody who's really promoting the circular economy or whether you're a business there was certain ways of talking about SMEs mm -hmm. and um there was the ones that were sort of more shared were things like that um, um, SMEs being sort of time and staff and economically constrained and obviously the operating environment being competitive. Uh, but what I was really interested in is there was a number of discourses where there was very clear sort of conflict or what people, you know, from an academic perspective, they talk about contrary maxims, but what we're talking about is different ways of framing um um what's perceived as the reality for smes mm. and obviously i can't go into detail on that but please go and read the phd if you if you want to get a bit more detail but um there was three of them that i found particularly insightful which i think could answer give better answers to what are the fundamental reasons why things might not be happening as we wanted to do and it was really about the sort of the different sort of perceptions and lived experiences 
So it's not just about what people write, but it's people's personal lived experiences of things like um, it was the role and freedoms of SMEs that they have in com- you know, that they have, the decision makers in those businesses have in relation to the freedoms that their customers have in okay. terms of where they can choose to go mm-hmm. to obtain a product or a service. Um, I mean, it, you know, on that one, for example, what we found was that a lot of the historically embedded, this is, is historically rooted as to um, where our modern SME um, comes from, is that they... The, the modern SMEs developed as as specialists. So they became specialist providers of a particular service or a product. Now that specialism could have been cost-based, could have been performance-based, but that's how they became established to, and so everything that they do is based on meeting that need of a particular customer base and they want their customers to stay with them. So they become Mm. locked into this certain way of what they make and how they make it and meeting certain criteria. The thing is that customers are sort of desire-based. So a customer can just decide any moment in time to walk away from that relationship. And so those understandings of what freedoms an SME has in innovating, which is... Uh, a big thing was a major factor um the other major conflict was the uh, perceptions or lived experiences or how people wrote about the enactment of environmental and social values and ideology and practice so this is you might think of it as this sort of um there's lots of discourse out there that we the society we want more sustainable products now, we might say we want lots more products, but a lot of the, there's almost like a, a reluctance or maybe a conflicting evidence to demonstrate that actually what we say isn't necessarily what we do in mm. practice. So that constant conflict is, do we trust what people say they want based on my experience of, well, really, they're, they're very much focused on price, so they're not going to have this. So there's those sort of conflicts. And then there was a there was also the an element of what do you trust? What did the SMEs trust or see as truth of these amazing things out there saying what the economic value of the circular economy is? Because mm. it's very much focused on benefits. You'll see circular economy proponents and policy all talking about these amazing benefits, but nobody talks about costs. Now, obviously, if you're a business. When you do an analysis, you're doing cost and benefits. And there's very rarely information out there. Well, what are the costs? How can I actually really evaluate the costs and benefits mm. so it can create that stagnation? So they're sort of things that I just found really um, interesting. So when you de- delve deeper into that as to why those discourses exist, gave you a better feel for where we need to fundamentally address um, a number of other areas, really. Mm. And I think certainly the action intention gap is interesting. Mm. Um, and I guess the although there is this gap, um, which seems to be narrowing over the years, and both metrics seem to be going up, that more people want to make a more sustainable choice, as well as more people actually 
doing that or opting not to buy something. So both metrics are gradually rising and the, and the gap is narrowing, which is encouraging. But I guess we should still be encouraged by the fact that people have a desire to act more sustainably, even if they're not able to put that into reality. It's, it's more encouraging, isn't it, than people saying, I just don't care. Um, and so I guess for businesses, one of the ways that you could progress is to, is to kind of think, well, if somebody comes to my shop website company with that aim to make a more sustainable choice, have I got the right information to help them think that they're in the right place? Are they going to trust the information or does it just, you know, am I saying lots of nice things, but they're not really backed up? Like saying that something is repairable or recyclable, but not making it clear how that would happen. So those kind of things. And so I suppose it's it's all about going a bit further than just advertising, if you like, you know, the, the kind of broad brush, here we are, an eco choice or whatever choice, but it's about giving people enough information that they think that's tangible and they then trust that this is the better thing. And I guess also you still need to demonstrate the value. So if this thing's, if this choice is going to cost a bit more, how does that become better value for the customer? You might do something that, you know, this, this fair phone is going to last twice as long as a normal smartphone. So it's going to cost you maybe 40, 50% more, but you will get that money back because it's going to last a lot longer. And if something does go wrong, it's repairable at low cost. So those kind of more concrete ways of, of helping people feel that they're in the right place. Does that chime with what you were discovering? Um, I think part of it was when he was looking at the, the language that we use today, even still in the circular economy, there is still much use of the language of economic cost savings and mm. everything going forward having to result in either lower costs for people or as you said Catherine this whole concept of value for money now all of that is based on and of only valuing what is can be measured as having an economic value mm. so if we continue so part of it is that if in the circular economy we continue to sort of promote that cost savings or economic value is the priority then expectations of things like repaired or i would argue repaired remanufactured or refurbished products have to always be lower costs that the real value of those surely it's beyond economics sometimes why you know, where's the environmental and social values of that decision? Mm. And and so it's how do we sort of um, balance that? And of course, because we, if we continue to reframe everything in terms of economic value, then um, we, we, we were going back to where we're saying that by reinforcing a certain way of talking, we're sort of ignoring things. And one of the things we're ignoring by that is we're not challenging those views that business as usual the fact that new stuff that we can access today is only low cost because the real cost of the negative social and environmental impacts are not accounted for in what we pay today so mm. it's almost a bit unfair that doing the good thing where you are 
accounting for the costs of the environmental and social benefits you're achieving, um, it's going to cost. But those externalities aren't included in our everyday new products mm. um, in many cases. So, so, so yeah, so that was one of the, that the way that we continue to focus on that sort of measuring the circular economy and the value of the circular economy in economic terms may have unintended consequences mm. of inhibiting the adoption of other circular business models, which in the short yes. term may cost, may economically cost more, but actually the social and environmental value is significantly higher. Yeah, because we're investing now in a in a better future, aren't we? A more um, resource secure and resilient and clean and healthy future. Yeah. And I guess thinking about how once money comes into the equation, other things assume less importance. That reminds me of um, something I read in a book by Margaret Heffernan, her, her book, Willful Blindness, I think it was. Um, where she brings in some some research that was academic research that was done that demonstrated as soon as money came into a decision making conversation about anything wasn't mm -hmm. sustainability related but as soon as money came into the equation everything else even decisions that had already been agreed to or criteria that were deemed to be important they all dropped down the pecking order and money became the number one criteria and it is interesting isn't it how how that has become just a way of thinking because there's no there's no logical reason for that being the case is there you know not not everybody is on a tight budget um and there's also i'll i'll, I'll make a note to put this in the um a link in the show notes <coughs> excuse me um the vimes boots theory um where this is this is from terry pratchett oh, right. a character called vimes though apparently he just kind of rewrote it but this theory that um you know there's a rich man and a, and a poor man and the rich man could afford um a 50 dollar pair of boots obviously this is written quite a while ago yeah, but a good yeah. good quality pair of 50 dollar pair of boots that were good leather they were you know, able to be repaired, resold, rehealed, all the rest of it, and would last him 10 years. But the poor person could only afford a $20 pair of boots. Yeah. And those would have to be replaced every year or 18 months. And at the end of a 10 year period, you know, the poor person had spent an awful lot more yeah. and still got wet feet. Um, so it's, you know, it's this conundrum, isn't it, between the initial cost and the value that it's going to give you. But if if cost is a barrier, if upfront cost is a barrier, we need in the circular economy to find a way to make those things accessible and affordable to people, whether that's through rental or exchange or making good quality refurbished things available to people. And what um, I think it was Walter Stahl a few years ago was making the point that, you know, we, we shouldn't. Um, why is it that we're happy to invest in things that appreciate like antiques or vintage cars and houses? Yeah. Um, and we see those as one class of possessions where we're quite happy to have something pre-used 
Um, and even for antiques, pay an awful lot more for an antique yeah. table than it would ever have cost new and be quite happy with, you know, the odd bit of um, superficial damage and so on. And yet for other things, we devalue it when it's when it's used. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be any logic around that other than what's socially acceptable. Exactly. I mean, the and of course, when we're talking about that sort of economic value bit as well, what we've also got to remember is, well, who decides what something is worth? Mm. How do we put a numeric value, a monetary value on the quality of a view or the life of a tree just being there mm. for all the insects and birds and everything that are using it? And because we... And and so a lot of the there are the arguments is is about well how can we you know commodify even more you know this sort of term is how can and that's what we try to do we try to uh, make it a commodity something that we can buy and sell from an economic perspective and some things just can't be done like that you know and, and but because we can't do that then they're deemed not important. Mm. What about jargon that gets used around the circular economy? Are there some phrases that are really impenetrable to people listening or phrases that perhaps convey the opposite or a confusing message? One of the primary phases, uh, phrases that uh, people use as a matter of habit is this of uh, waste being a valuable resource. Um, and there's sort of two important bits of that. First of all, by people using that, it reinforces that position that a material or a product can suddenly change identity. You know, it becomes a waste and moves the focus of, and moves the sort of focus away from the fact that it's us who waste things. You know, we carry out wasteful practices. The material is still the same material. The product is still the same product. It hasn't become something else. So it's more of a, you know, it's a, um, uh, yeah. So, and then secondly, probably is more damning to me, I think, is that if we continue to position wasting stuff as having value and being a valuable resource, I would see the unintended consequences that of inhibiting reducing wasteful practices. Because if wasting stuff is good for the economy, then shouldn't we just continue to waste and potentially waste even more? And and so I think that sort of detracts from those serious conversations we need to have about moving from something like a recycling economy, which is what mm. we're sort of very much wedded to at the moment, to a more circular economy where, you know, where we should be avoiding... Uh, wasting materials and products wherever we can so there's that sort of fundamental aspect of the uh, discourse of the circular economy um and i think there's also um one of the things is how we sort of position different people or groups of people in society in relation to their roles as part of the circular economy so you know we we considered you know generally talk about people as consumers. How many mm. times do we see you know, consumers and consumption? 
and and I know this is starting to change, which is great. I, I'm seeing more and more um, little snippets everywhere, which is brilliant. But buyers positioning people as consumers and the need to consume products, we sort of legitimize, we sort of give ourselves a license, shall we say, to buy more stuff and to use up uh, more and more materials. But and when we have to sort of delineate between, obviously, we consume food, we you know, this we mm. eat it, it it's in, but that's about it. To be honest, everything else we just use. You know, we're sort of if we see ourselves as temporary guardians of a product, then we think a bit differently um, uh, about it. So I think that can sort of help get people thinking differently about products and, and materials. Um, yeah, I, I like I like that. And that's not a word I'd thought of before. I always try and talk about people or end users yeah. or citizens depending on the context and to avoid as far as possible saying consumers because it you know it it's something that was that that came about in the um, early part of the last century this need for people to consume to to enable industry to keep making things and keep making profits and so that was a role given to us as you know hamsters in a (laughs) <laughs> on a treadmill the, the whole thing of you know work by consume die um is one of one of the kind of mm. cartoons that i used in in my early talks on sustainability 10 years ago but i think the idea of being a product guardian suddenly as you you know as you've said it, it's all about the framing isn't it yeah. that starts to make you think completely differently about what you're going to do with that laptop bicycle um you know sweater that you've that you've fallen out of love with whatever it is um instead of just thinking that you kind of you know consume and and discard so that could you know those that that word could be really interesting to discover how how people change their thinking on something just when they've kind of got a different a different badge attached to their their role with that product and it, it sort of goes back to you mentioned earlier on about how we treat antiques or or houses or something. Or in houses, we we never really own them. We are just guardians for whoever is going to come after us and live in that home in the future. So that's what we're doing in effect, isn't it? We mm. have a different way of thinking about those type of products. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and maybe if we just thought like that for everything else you know we we just take care of things a bit more mm. and we definitely know that we have to look after the house otherwise yeah. <laughs> its value will go down we won't yeah. be able to sell it if we yeah. needed to and and so on so yeah, yeah that you know it's it's mm. it's fairly straightforward isn't it to find some examples and translate those across yeah. so and when you're talking to businesses that want to either go start going a bit more circular or you know go further in their circular economy journey what's the number one sort of top tip that you share with them um i I think the thing is 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 to sort of get across it might seem hard at the beginning but is you know to stay with it and i think we we very much talk and, and i get my team to talk about this is is that to talk about it as a journey not a race you know that it doesn't mean you have to be circular tomorrow 
it, and every journey is going to be different. But one of the things I, I try to get across is they're not alone. You know, that there is help out there and especially talking to other businesses. I think this sort of looking at more collaborating and being a bit more open with each other. And obviously my experience is mainly with SMEs and they they do do it. You know, they talk to each other very, you know, in my experience, very open. And if they can share those sort of um, the trials and tribulations, um it really helps. So, because I think a lot of businesses are probably on the same journey and are coming across the same problems and 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 same issues, and and sometimes just need somebody to talk to who understands them. So it's not a one size fits all thing. It's mm. somebody who, you know, oh yeah, they're running something very similar to me. How did they do it? Oh, and perhaps I could do that, and they can help me. Mm. And you know, so so it's sort of staying on the journey. Don't worry if you're not going fast enough or as fast as somebody else. It's your journey. Mm. Yeah, mm. thank you. That and, and I think definitely talking to other businesses, whether they're in the same sector or not, um, it, you know, quite often happens that I might mention something that I've talked to somebody about in one sector as being either idea provoking or relevant to somebody in a completely different sector of the economy. And if you could wave a magic wand tomorrow, Anne, and change one thing, what what would that be and why? I think it comes back to, we've covered it quite a bit today, is that um, the value of kindness to people on the planet was deemed more important than money or economic growth. Yeah, so so yeah, so if I could just do that. <laughs> yeah, be be kind is a is a good motto. Yeah. yeah. Um thank you. And lastly, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and the team at Resource Futures? Well, if you want to read my PhD, it is out there on all right. so well, we'll do put, go we'll and get it. We'll put a link in the in the show yeah. notes to that. Yeah. Great. Um and we have just published uh well the Royal Society of Chemistry is just published a book last month on the circular economy meeting sustainable development goals great art uh, great chapters in there and i've written one as well on my phd so if you want to go and have a look at that that's good and of course simply just always open to having a conversation so get in touch on linkedin i'm not brilliant at linkedin so i need some help folks on how to make that better or you could just email me Great stuff. And we'll put links to the PhD and the book and um, the other links that you mentioned in the show notes. So, Anne, thanks very much. And good luck with the next phase of, of work, helping people to shape their language, to move us all towards a more sustainable and circular world. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Catherine. So there you go. Another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our thought-provoking guest this week, Anne Stevenson of Resource Futures. And thanks also to Katie Beverly of PDR for introducing me to Anne. You can find out more about Anne Stevenson, download her PhD paper, check out the new book she's written a chapter for, and follow up on the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. Music 
The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with Circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops and advice, plus Circular Economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage. You could also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out the interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.